is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello there, and welcome again to the Enter Sad Men podcast. Here we are again, uh, episode 69 this time round. I'm Richard. I'm joined by Mark and Steve, as always. And, well, you know the drill. We're going to review three more albums as we build the ever-increasing hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. Please do visit us at uh, www.entersadmen.co.uk to check everything out, who we are, what we do, the hall of fame itself, all of our reviews of a huge number now, over 200 uh, hard rock and heavy metal albums that you should own. The good, the bad, and the so bad that they're, well, pretty good, actually. You can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, all the other bits and pieces, and obviously you've found where you can get this podcast from already. So thank you again, and uh, we hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, This episode, well, uh, we are now delving into the delights of keyboard players. We've had guitarists. We've done bassists, and now it's the turn of the ivory tinklers as the theme of this episode of the podcast. And gentlemen, we had a good time choosing some keyboard heavy albums, didn't we? Mark, how did you get up? I did a bit of research, kind of, you know, best rock keyboard players, just to, you know, maybe find some that I'd not heard of. And in the end, the consensus was that one of the best around was a guy called Kerry Livgren, who was the keyboard, one of the keyboard players in Kansas. So uh, I went for the, the album that is generally regarded as their best. This process will determine that, obviously, but it's Left Overture from 1976. A grand choice. That's a fantastic choice. Uh, Steve, how? what about you? Where did you go? Uh, well, n- not there. Um, I hope you can differentiate the keyboard players on that one because um, I've been battling all week trying to figure out who did what <laughs> bits on that one. So I'm, I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you, my friend, for advice on that. Well, I was going I was, I was to go left field and choose 5150, but then I snapped out of it because, um, yeah, <laughs> a bit of Eddie, why not? But then I decided, you know what, I'll just go back to, you know, one of the bands I've always loved more than most who had a bona fide high-class, world-class pianist um, at their disposal, and that was Gillen and um, Colin Towns, and I chose uh, from 1979, Mr. Universe. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, we'll talk later. He left his his prints all over that, didn't he? Yes, well, um, yeah, and we have... Oh, here we go again. We have a trio, then, of 70s albums for this episode, because I went comfortable, and now I've been looking at getting in here eventually, and the time felt right that uh, we celebrate, well, what he was a multi-instrumentalist, but um, some of his best keyboard playing, Mr. Ken Hensley, Uriah Heep, and yes, we are going to review Demons and Wizards this time round. I think a fantastic trio of albums. I don't know about you two, I've had a ball this last uh, week or so, but uh, here's a little taster from each of them. Uh, just before we get into them in depth. Carry on 
so there you go. That should have whetted your appetite. Nice little blast of uh, she tears she tears me down from um, from Gillen from uh, Mister Universe. And um, yeah, the third of the three albums we're doing tonight. We always do these things in chronological order. That's how this gig works. Um, so first up, going back to seventy two. I'm not very good at dates. I've got I made an absolute fuck up of it last time round. We got me eighty fours and me ninety two. I don't know what was going on, but anyway. But this time, there's no dispute because it's nineteen seventy two because it says so on the album sleeve in front of me, and that's Demons and Wizards by Uriah Heep. Richard, opening album sleeve notes. Demons and Wizards. Uriah Heep. We have featured them what twice so far, I think, haven't we? On the on the pod, yep. we did the album that came before this a long, long time ago. Um, a very early episode. Look at yourself, and uh, we featured Firefly not so long ago. But yes, here we are. Demons and Wizards, their fourth studio album and their finest. Well, again, our process will find out. Uh, but certainly, I mean, they felt good about this. They were committed. They were balanced. They were working together really, really well. The arrival of a couple of new band members uh, gave them another injection of energy. It's, it's certainly amongst my favourites of theirs. What about it then? It was, yeah, 1972. It was released in the on the 19th of May, 1972. It was recorded uh, through March and April, as we've said before so many times. They didn't mess around in those days, did they? Released, obviously, on the Bronze label, Jerry Bronze label in the UK, but also Ireland, and released on Mercury in North America. Yeah, the producer was the extra member of URH, Jerry Bron, recorded at Lansdowne Studios in London, and the personnel. So David Byron on lead vocals, uh, Mick Box guitar, Ken Hensley, our keyboard celebration uh, for this episode on keyboards, but also some guitars and percussion as well. Gary Thane, uh, a new arrival for most of the bass on most of the tracks. Uh, but Mark Clark, who was a short-lived member, plays bass on uh, a few tracks. Uh, the other new arrival that, again, just just really just gave him that amazing foundation, the wonderful Lee Kerslake on drums and percussion and some backing vocals as well. Chart-wise, uh, it was their most successful. It reached number 20 in the UK, 23 over in the States, and it went gold uh, in the States for them. Uh, we should mention the album cover, shouldn't we? It's another Roger Dean gatefold, amazing piece of, of art. Track-wise, there are nine tracks, five on side one, four on side Two, side one, The Wizard, Traveller in Time, Easy Living, Poets, Justice, Circle of Hands, and side two, Rainbow Demon, All My Life, Paradise, and The Spell. I mean, Hensley mentioned how focused the band was at the time, and they really wanted to, you know, they wanted the same thing, wanted to make some sacrifices, very committed. And they, they he felt there was a real magic in uh, in what they recorded. People did wonder if it was a concept album, given you know, the title and, and some of the you know, the, the titles of the tracks but they said actually no it was just a, a bunch of songs that we wanted to record really enjoyed recording and we wanted to put out together for me as an album it it really really works uh it's got some wonderful wonderful music on it how about you two how did you get on well it's interesting isn't it that people thought that it was a concept album because that's not the only album we're going to look at mm. tonight that people thought was a concept yeah, yeah. album but actually isn't so yeah I absolutely loved it I think it's just a wonderful wonderful album and of course we're dealing with three albums tonight aren't we where the keyboard player is the main songwriter for the band um and in my case, Steve, yes, there are about 400 keyboard players in Kansas. But I think Kerry Livgren is generally perceived to be you know, the, the most influential one. But yeah, I, I just think it's an, an, an amazing soundscape. And it's a very, def, very, very different album to look at yourself. I mean, people talk about 
Demons and Wizards is your eyes heap, your eye heaps um, kind of best album. Some people will say Look at Yourself is their best album. I think Look at Yourself was a bit of a mess in places, but this isn't. This is absolutely mm. on the money from front to back. There are bits of it I care less about, but there are mm. loads of it I really, really love. So, yeah, I've had a really good week. Really, yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. There's, there's, there's daylight between them. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, this is far superior. What, what are your, what do you think, Steve? God, <laughs> the voice of reason's about to enter the room, ladies oh. and gentlemen. Oh. This has happened twice now with me with early Uriah Heat. I, I didn't get look at yourself, and I, and I, I still don't quite know what I'm getting here. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how many more listens I've got to give it, and I gave look at yourself as. as as, as good a girl as a good first things first ken hensley no problem with this boy whatsoever the bloke who goes on and does keyboards on the headless children fine by me and of course <laughs> and of course the other wasp tale to be told we're not going to tell it during the plane of the album um is easy living of course one of wasps better covers in my eyes well and one of the better tracks on inside the electric circus so like mark i knew that track left right and center now i'm a, but i'm also intrigued to hear what that the original sounded like having never bothered before but you know having heard the wasp song I love anyway back to this so yeah look um i've warmed to the 70s massively since we started doing this pod um but one but the one album or one album anyway certainly from that decade which hasn't scored well with me is look at yourself um and it's actually in my bottom 10 albums reviewed for this show i just didn't get on with it at all so i'm genuinely apprehensive coming to this and if i'm honest it's been a challenge I've got no vitriolic dislike or anything like that. Uh, the song arrangements are fine. Love some of the musicianship. Bass player take a bow. Lots to like. I don't know. I find it a bit bitty. It's difficult to it's difficult to complain about it being bitty when it's basically a prog album. But I find Ken Kansas's Left Overture quite bitty as well. The next album will do. The difference being, I absolutely love the tunes and melodies on that album, and this one I, just not as much. I've I've really struggled. I mean, what even is it? Gothic rock, symphonic metal power something i don't know it's a real mixed bag um but 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 as i say some of the eulogies i've read about this thing online and i've done an awful lot of reading online just to see how out on out on a limb i am and i feel guilty almost for failing to understand the greatest album ever written but of course i don't feel guilty because because that's me and that's my view um fascinating fast i think i i think it it deserves more listens i've played it plenty of times and i just still don't warm to it i've Okay, I find that fascinating. I think you need to give mm. it some more listens. Mm, maybe I really so. do. <laughs> maybe so. And in answer to your question, it's a bit bitty and all over the place. You're forgetting this is 1972. No, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I'll give them slack for that. Yeah, very much so. Okay, well let's let's put it on then and give this one a spin.
both mentioned the randomness of these albums and of course we, we don't start this album with a belter we start it with an acoustic guitar uh, and a song called the wizard written by hensley with uh, mark clark one of those songs uh, before he he left the band yeah just a story about a man who got to know uh, a, a wizard but actually based on a dream that Ken Hensley had. It was uh, their first single, song-wise. I love this. I think it's wonderful. A beautiful piece of music. A lovely soundscape. Keyboards, well, there's some really thundering keyboards and other tracks on this album here. The keyboards are so subtle, including a really high-pitched bed at the beginning of the track. I I think it's just wonderful how this uh, this whole song builds. I'm a very strange choice, I think, for a first track, but I think it's beautiful. I don't have an awful lot to add to that. I think you've pretty much covered where I got to with it. It's so 70s, it could be wearing bell bottoms. You know, there's there's a whole load of sort of quasi Beatles stuff going on throughout it, which which great, but it's also really heavy in places as well. And the close harmonies on it are amazing. I mean, it threatens to go a bit barbershop at times, but it never quite goes that far. Love it. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Yeah, like, like you, Rich, it's an unbelievably odd choice for opener. It's um, I was not expecting it. Uh, and initially, and I honestly felt a bit deflated when I first heard it. I thought, well, that was surely that's surely that's not in the literature. How did that happen? But this is the one that's grown on me more than any other track on this album. Mm. I still don't think it's exceptional, but I love that pickup, and then it starts to rock and it rolls and it rolls and it rocks. And that last minute when it kind of chugs out with those backing vocals, where it gets almost evangelical. I mean, that's mm. really good stuff. Really good stuff. This, this is a real grower. Well, you might do read that Mark Clark did the high notes in it because uh, David Byron couldn't quite reach them. <laughs> what? Um, David yeah. Byron's a, a serial high note reacher. Well, so, so I so I read. So I read. Well, let, okay, let's move on to, to track two, which is Traveller in Time. So it picks up a bit here, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, much more of a groove on this one. Fantastic dual guitars. I mean, I, I don't know, I'll say this about Kansas as well in terms of al- albums that deserve to be listened to through headphones. Traveller in Time, there's so much going on with the guitars in each ear. These lovely sort of light melodic verses, big driven choruses, bit of a mad wah-wah guitar solo uh, towards the end. For me, I... I keeps going in terms of quality not as good for me as the opener but still really enjoy traveler in time yeah i'm, I'm not as, i'm not as bothered about this as, as the first one i find this a bit cheesy <laughs> if i'm honest and it, I, I get what you're saying about the lasers, and you I absolutely get what you're saying about the headphones because there is so much going on i love gary thane's bass playing by the way absolute mm. star of this show what a tragic early loss to, to life he was i think he died a few years later i mean he just walks his way through this through this whole album but what the tracks he plays on which i think is pretty much most of them you'll you'll know better than I. But it's proggy in a kind of free jazz kind of way, very groovy. Um, Mm. The groove out is quite good. Um, But it's just okay to me, this. I haven't got it. Well, it's certainly a step down, isn't it, from from the opening tracks. There's no doubt about that. It is hugely experimental, though, isn't it? It almost feels like they are just jamming. None of it makes sense. And everything's a bit surprising. They they drop into stuff and come out of stuff and you go, oh, I didn't see that coming. But I think... That's my that's my issue, Mark. I, I just think some of the, the, the... They're almost taking risks and some of them don't work. That, that's that's where I am. Certainly on a track like this, you obviously see it very differently. Let's move on to the next one. So the most well-known heat track 
which is easy living. Um, certainly the most covered, yeah, even by wasp. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, it, it's a it's an organ driven fast shuffle. I mean, this is proper proper Hammond organ playing, isn't it? Interspersed with lovely little fills. It's about one of these other songs about the easy life of a rock star. So along the same lines as Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. And yeah, the, the irony, because they think they're working their asses off <laughs> travelling around and, and playing every night. Released a single, obviously, it uh, was their highest charting single in the US. It uh, reached the top 40. I still love it. And, well, I'm interested in your view, but I think, as I said, when um, we recorded the uh, the episode with Wasp, the Wasp version isn't a patch on this. Mm-hmm. Steve, would you like to bring a, <laughs> the case for the defence, or are well. you... Uh, are you- don't there is just plead guilty. There's no fuck off. There's no case to be made. I mean, it's the, the, the wasp version is awesome. I don't make. I, there's no comparisons to be made. What I would say is that <laughs> when you listen to this, you realise actually wasp just copied it rather than covered it. Yeah. So you know, and um, to that extent, yeah, this this takes it of course because it's the original. Uh, but I love wasp first. Hensley wrote this in 15 minutes. Apparently, it went to number one in Finland. Those might be two big takeaways from this, which is um, I gather Finland is a heap hotbed. Well, I think they were huge all around Europe, especially. Bulgaria, but we've done that conversation before, haven't we? With, yeah, we um, have. We look have. at yourself. <laughs> um, I think this is such a cool tune, such a cool tune. And, it, and again, I, I'm going to say it, not for the sec- second time, second of many, Thane's bass work. I love the organ, but Thane's bass work is the mm. star turn on this. He's, he's just wandering around that fretboard. I love mm. it. Uh, the only thing that I've got to add on on all of that, because I think you've, you've, all, you've both covered it, is I've never heard a, a Hammond organ played like that before or since. <laughs> It's how do you make it riff like a guitar like that? Mm. Just amazing work. Hens's work throughout this album is just absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, I mean, in a in an episode that kind of celebrates keyboard players, this is is probably the one record that had to be involved. Right. Well, let's move on to to track four, which is Poets Justice. For me, hats off to Lee. Kerslake on this because uh, the groove that he lays down on this and then on top of it this sort of multi-layered riffing between the bass the keyboard guitars organ I, I can understand Steve um <laughs> <laughs> this may be one that you you might be finding finding hard to engage with. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I've got nothing to say because Rich has done my review, Mark. So it's um, down to you because <laughs> he's absolutely uh, spot big, on in my thoughts. Yeah, a big shout out to Mick Box. <laughs> it's really interesting. I remember when reading, particularly Kerrang! during the early eighties, around about the time Abominog came out, and you couldn't move for Mick Box in Kerrang! for weeks on end. And he was like the, the face of Uriah Heep. And yet, in the three episodes that we've recorded that feature Uriah Heep, we've barely mentioned him. But his guitar work on this, in fact, his guitar work on all of them, but particularly on this, I think, is yeah. really kind of exemplary. It's, mm. he, because, And I think that the reason he gets overlooked is because there's nothing fancy or you know elaborate about it. He just does what's necessary. But it's absolutely yeah. perfect for the, for the song. Poets Justice, Steve. What do you really think about it? I like everything you said about it. I like that kind of the, the, the layers of the bass line and the riff and the, and the, and the organ, the, the way they work together as a unit. It's brilliant. Into the solo, backed up by a proper drum line. It's, it's about a minute or so of really good hard rock, but I think the start of it and the end, for that matter, are pretty forgettable. So that just leaves the music, right. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, yeah, it's just... 
yeah, when you when you need to, when you're being challenged and you need to warm to something, that's hard to do. Mm. Would it, will, will it ever work with me? I don't know. But it's better to come. Well, okay. Well, let's see if track five is one of those. Um, and track five is Circle of Hats. Uh, starts with a very very heavy organ for a short bit, and then into this bass and drum driven groove. Byron, I think, is on top form on this in terms of his vocals. We got sort of back between back and forth between so these organ and ver- vocal verses, and then a more sort of groove driven sort of solos and, and bridges. And then the song builds and builds and builds to the end. I, I, I really like this the side the side one of, of this album, um, and and this is a good finish. I love the way this builds. I love I love the fact that it's so kind of unassuming. You think it's just going to be, you know, a very a bit like, you know, the wizard. It's just going to be kind of light and quite sort of, you know, floaty and it's just going to kind of swirl around you. But it doesn't, it gets proper heavy. And for someone who doesn't really get prog, this is this is the perfect album for me because it's heavy enough to kind of tick that box for me but there's enough going on here as well it makes it really kind of interesting to listen to and when we use the word interesting often it's in a derogatory way but actually there's so much to hear in all of this particularly in this track the way that the the keyboard the keyboard kind of duets with byron's voice and you're right he's on top form byron on this i, I just think it's a great song great ending to side one as well and the whole out al- the whole album so far for me has been utterly consistent Utterly mm-hmm. consistent. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think this is a great end to side one, like you. I also think the whole album so far has been really hit and miss. Um, but we'll discuss that. <laughs> this this song, the organ motif that runs through this, it's almost it's almost hymnal. It's almost like a cathedral. Yeah. It's beautiful, yeah, right. really beautiful. Yeah. Byron's opening vocal lines are a little bit Disney for me, but I can forgive him that. I think there's a breakdown into the solo and a breakdown into the outro that are absolutely magnificent. Okay, well let's uh, let's flip it over and uh, see what side two brings and side two starts with more deep heavy organ uh, at the start of rainbow demon i mean a very brooding dark atmospheric track i, I was kind of getting on this it's, it's almost western in style at times I and mean, this is sort of um you know uriah heat meets morricone uh here i think box does a very very good solo this is up there with my favorites of the album i, I think it's a brilliant track and it's got some good organ on it. Oh, throbbing. Throbbing organ, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And we'll work on some more euphemisms as the night goes on. Um, I think it's a great open side too. I really do. Um, I love that kind of slightly sinister. It's more than slightly. It's very sinister feel to it. There's a kind of, I'm getting a kind of gothic darkness and, mm. you know, and then it just lumbers. I mean, I don't know what it's, it could be about a blowjob or something. I don't know, but it feels a lot more malevolent than that. And then it just lumbers and powers as it picks up. Sabbath couldn't have made it more menacing. It's, yeah, I love it. I think it's a really, really dark art done well. Well, let's move on to track seven, All My Life, which, well, after all of the uh, confusion and layers and everything else, we get a much more straight ahead rocker uh, in All My Life. Under three minutes, catchy little riff. I think almost queen type harmonies on this one i felt yeah this is a step down for me after the wondrousness of the previous six how did you two get them i love this (laughs) 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 i just think it's really cheeky i think yeah this is this is a song that's got you know 
a pint in its hand and yeah, it's, it's having a yak at the bar. I just love it. I think it's really good. It's got a nice little kind of boogie going on. It's, I think it's quite a refreshing sort of counterpoint to everything else. Um, yeah, no one's going to mistake. No one's going to mistake this for heavy prog or you know up your ass artiness, is it? Are they? It's, it's, it's just a, it's just a rock and roll song. Uh, I quite like it. <laughs> it's up the bar having a yak. Where do you get that metaphor from? It's sensational. <laughs> I'm with Richard. I just think it's, I, I, it's average. For me, it's just a very average track. <laughs> Mercifully short. It's yeah. not getting a ten from me. <laughs> so it's a crafty cockney in a room full of thespians, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It is. It's like it's like someone's gate crashed a private party. I feel yeah. Like. Yeah. You're right. You're right, Governor. Yeah. <laughs> Who is this person? Can they be removed? How did we get here? <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, the uh, last two tracks often often paired. Uh, so the last two tracks are Paradise and The Spell. So track eight is Paradise. Again, we're back to uh, acoustic guitar driven, simpler song. I mean, very pleasant. Yeah, lovely light organ accents through accents through it. Yeah, you need headphones for this one. It's a l- nice late night relaxing song not as strong as others uh sort of somewhere in the middle in my scoring it's pleasant it's nice but i wouldn't say it's as beautiful as some of the stuff on side one no, i'd agree with that I, I, it, it's perfectly all right isn't it it's um steve will tell you it's better than all my life probably mm. um I, i'm not sure that's true <laughs> um, no it is it is i think it's a better song it, it's okay i don't think it's remarkable and i think some of the stuff on the album is you know particularly the front end is um is quite remarkable this isn't but this is a if you're up late at night and you've got your headphones on you turn it up loud it's you can drift away to this which in its own kind of way is a really nice way to sort of see out the second the, the last part of the of the album and you know when we move on to the spell that kind of carries on the theme i'm not overly bothered about the spell but it does it kind of they work as a pair don't they yeah they do steve mm, yeah no i like paradise i must admit i like that sort of dream there's kind of a bit, a bit pink floyd in it and it's arrangement at the start um and uh, thane again propping up that lovely guitar line and but some of the strums there's an awful lot of sort of jimmy page style strums i'm thinking the back end of led zepp 3 and a lot of the sort of in, in a lot of yeah. what's going on there which is a nice thought process to be in um and then it goes increasingly spacey almost hawkwind as it sort of ebbs into the spell and then the arse falls out of it unfortunately because i really enjoy paradise <laughs> uh, the arse i'm presuming you're talking about is the spell yeah and it, it, i mean it, there, there's definitely a flow from one into the other <laughs> the spell is 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 weird isn't it it, it they've sandwiched two musical styles together yeah and even i i'm not convinced they work because no. you, you've got you know this sort of atmospheric bits and pieces, and then sandwiched with essentially boogie woogie. <laughs> I, I don't dislike it. I just I'm just not that bothered about it. It I would have been quite happy if this album had finished at seven tracks. Well, I'm going to call it out. I, I think it's like a honky tonk wank, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> and it's a kind of and, and, and there's a there's points on it where there's a kind of like a fusion of warfare and meatloaf. And that is a terrible fusion of things, trust me. And, and, then, and then it sort of meanders a bit. Hensley tries to save it with a piano solo, which isn't the most exciting. It's just a bit crap, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm <laughs> brutally honest. I'm not massively... It's such an album of ups and downs for me that um, it's a real bummer that it finishes on such a down, but I'm, I'm not hugely surprised. Uh, no, fair enough. So, well, Steve, then, what, 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 is, what is your 
down is down and biggest up then let's have some highs and lows yeah well i mean i've not disliked any of it as i say it's just it's just not talked to me quite as much as i, as I thought the spell is is my weakness um without a shadow of a doubt um and the the one that really i'm really warm to i just think it's a treat is rainbow demon mark uh yeah the spell for me is the is the low point of the album but I just loved. I fell in love immediately with the wizard, so that would be my my high. Okay, for me, I I, I don't dislike the spell as much as you do. I'll give all my life the the lowest score. I mean, nothing's super low, and I'm with you, Mark. Uh, the wizard uh, is my track of the album. So there we are. Uh, you're right, demons and wizards, Mister Ken Hensley, uh, the first of our celebrated keyboardists on this episode. And we move forward from uh, 1972 to 1976. Uh, and Mark's choice, uh, the delights of Kerry Livgren and Kansas and Left Overture. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, where do you start with, with Left Overture? I mean, there's a bit of Boston going on here because the question you ask yourself quite early on in this album is, well, where do they go from here? Uh, with Carry On Wayward Son, which I don't think I need to talk very much about because there must be a billion people on earth who've heard that one way or another. Is it a concept album? The band says no, but there's an awful lot of spirituality in it, which people have linked to the conversion in a hotel room of Dave Hope and Kerry Livgren to Christianity, a path that led them to leave the band eventually. And there is an awful lot of introspection. If you read the lyrics, it's, yeah, there, there's a lot about finding purpose in life and getting over difficulty. This is an album that was recorded in quite difficult circumstances because Steve Walsh had it was experiencing quite severe writer's block. If you look at the album cover, you've got this kind of old man who, who knows, but pouring over his magnum opus, which kind of kind of is a link to one of the tracks on the album, and clearly he's reached a block. So yeah, is the man on the cover Steve Walsh? Does that talk about the circumstances in which this album was conceived and recorded? Who knows? You've got Jeff Glixman um, producing it. Jeff Glixman, who was shuttling backwards and forwards between New York City and Louisiana to be a member of two bands, Kansas being the other one. It's their fourth album, so they've got a, a bit of a track record going on here of sort of building the progressive kind of progressive AOR. I don't know, is that symphonic AOR? I don't know. But they're under huge pressure from the record company who want a hit. They get one by accident with Carry On Wayward Son, but it is a remarkable piece of work. It is loathed and adored in equal measure. There's a camp of people who think it is the best piece of music ever written in middle America that leads the American charge of progressive rock sort of aping what was going on in the UK at that point and in the years before. And then you've got a whole load of people who just think it is arty wank. And, you know, I guess, you know, if it polarises people that, that much and we're talking about essentially a progressive rock band well probably they're not doing very much wrong you would argue wouldn't you this is recorded in december 1975 to august 76 that's taken eight or nine months um, to get out although they weren't in the studio for all that long it's released october 21st 1976 the clue to the material on the album is in the title of the album a lot of this is leftovers from previous sessions for mask and a song for america so this isn't all original material anyway so the fact that they've had this classic um 
sort of progressive material hanging around that they've cobbled together essentially because this is a triumph of belief over adversity in terms of trying to get anything written at all um so the fact they've had all of this sitting around just doing nothing and then they managed to construct it all into what is considered to be uh, a, a towering example of composition is amazing it's released on the Kirshner label in the united states epic in europe and japan and cbs in oceania it's three quarters of an hour long it doesn't feel like it because that's quite a long album even for a progressive band in the mid 70s um it's produced by jeff glicksman and kansas at studio in the country in bogalusa louisiana united states and the personnel well personnel uh pick the keyboard player out of this lot <laughs> steve walsh lead and backing vocals organ vibraphone and additional synthesizers kerry livgren on electric guitar piano clavinet moog oberheim and arp synthesizers <laughs> Robbie Steinhardt, violin, violin, viola, lead vocals on Miracles, Out of Nowhere, and Chair and Anthem, and backing vocals. And then you've got, well, the Commonwealth Garden, run-of-the-mill musicians. Rich Williams, electric and acoustic guitars. Dave Hope on bass guitar. Dave Hope, by the way, uh, was interviewed by a religious uh, TV channel back in the late 70s, where he admitted that he... Um, had ploughed about 40 grand's worth of his money into cocaine uh, over the previous years and was now clean. So, yay, Christianity. Um, <laughs> and then Paul Ehart on drums and per- percussion. Ehart, Ehart, I have no fucking idea whatsoever. Um, it got to number five in the Billboard 200 and spent 42 weeks there. No mean feat. And it has now sold five times platinum, five million units in the United States of America. That is Left Overture. It's a breathless story of intrigue and tragedy and triumph. How did you two find it? It's brilliant. I absolutely love it. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Fascinating because I read this quote from Liv Grimm where he said, having done strange music for several years, we got a little tired of eating rice. I realised I'd have to make my stuff a little more approachable. So, so presumably they're looking for some sort of sea change stylistically, you know, to pay the bills. Yet, having done that or having pronounced that, they still come up with this thing of true blue 
bona fide prog beauty as far as I'm concerned. I mean, yes, there's an air of, but as you mentioned, sort of AOR stadium, yeah, yeah, Americana, chasing the big bucks Americana going on here and hats doff to Boston as much as yes, if you're going to start paralleling with bands. And you often live and die by track one on an album and track one here, as you said, Carry On Wayward Son, was certainly aiming for the mainstream, even if it was almost like an accident um, in, in terms of how it caught on. But this is just still an unbelievably good cocktail of, you know, all the different bits and things and sounds, and it screams prog to me. It just screams prog. So why don't I like Demons and Wizards? This is more prog-like. This is, this is I don't know, there's something darker about Demons and Wizards that I don't get with this. I just think this is um, a lot of fun. And, and I've read some Kansas fans, diatribes against this stuff because it wasn't as experimental as, you know, the first three albums. But, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Because there's, there's nothing wrong with this at all. Yes, it veers into commerciality and nice tunes, as if that's some sort of crime. It's not a riff beast, this album, is it? There's not, there's not a whole stack of riffs to get stuck into. But it's the consistency of leftover material that's, that's such a real treat. We didn't mention at the top of the show our scoring system. We mark these tracks out of 10. And I've never marked an album... Track by track, we mark them out of 10. I've never marked an album where the band between top and bottom is so narrow, and that's just how solid it is for me. I love it. I think it's brilliant. And did you know it before? Had uh, you bits heard? of it. Yeah, oh, well, obviously, Carry On Wayward Son. And there was a couple of other tracks but oh, that came back to me, but no. Other than that, no, not really. Were you familiar with it, Rich? No, not no, not as an album. But I'm with, yeah, I'm with Steve. Oh, my goodness, I didn't realise how proggy they were. And if this is a less proggy album than previous ones, I mean, I, I've, I've given, I have given previous ones a, a, a little bit of a listen. But I must say that they they haven't grabbed me as, as much as, as this did. I mean, what a brilliantly balanced band. Amazing songwriting, amazing arrangements. Yeah, and, and prog all over it. I think they're in a category of their own let's not get ahead of ourselves let's have a little listen to um carry on wayward son and you only need to hear the first well not even not even a note do you uh, of that vocal harmony and you know exactly what this track is and i don't know whether it's the sentiment or my perceived sentiment of the lyrics or whether it's the, the music, but I never, I have never tired of it. What I completely forgot about Wayward Son was the complexity of it, how it chops and changes all of the different little themes going throughout it, wonderfully layered. Yeah, no, I. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been chastised by you two before for saying I get tired of songs. And for example, Wanted Dead or Alive, I seem to remember, cause a bit of commotion and even and back in life. <laughs> but and Fall for Your Love It, I could carry on. I've got a few um, that I, I know I've said. On, on here that um, I tied on. This one, funnily enough, I don't quite so much. Maybe I've not heard it so much. I don't know. But, but Rich is right. The layers. It's the layers in this. It's, it, there's so many things going on, all the tempo changes. and the, It's just such an accessible song. It's just such a – it would make a good pop song, certainly at that time, the, you know, in the mid-'70s. And yet Phil Ehart described it as something of an afterthought, you know, that, 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 that something had to, had to make way to squeeze this onto the album, which is a, which is a phenomenal yeah. story. Well, um, Livgren uh, turned up with it, didn't he, um, just as they went into the studio. They got all of the stuff they were recording, hmm. and Livgren just goes, oh, I've got this. <laughs> just, yeah, fuck. I know. Yeah, you'd think, right, OK, well, thanks for keeping that from us, lads. Yeah, yes. yeah. I know. Okay, Uh, we could sit and talk about Wayward Son for a very long time, but track two is The Wall, and obviously not the Roger Waters version. This is a bit more kind of stripped back. Well, I say stripped back. That makes it sound simple. It's quite (laughs) simple. Well, the opening of it is a a lot 
is a lot more straightforward, I would say. But it becomes complex quite quickly. But it's such a gorgeous song. And I completely get what you, you're saying, Steve, about the, the narrowness of the band in terms of the consistency across the entire album. But I also think this is a bit Broadway, a bit West End as well. It's mm. almost sort of like a bit musical, isn't it? Um, yeah. I just think it's a wonderful, glorious little song. And, and you kind of go, well, how do you follow Wayward Son? Well, the answer is probably with The Wall. This is a kind of big, sprawling power ballad type thing, but it's just great. Um, uh, there's, there's a funny bit at the end. Uh, is it Livgren on, on, on the organ? I don't know, but he goes very end of the pier <laughs> um, <laughs> towards the back end, but retrieves it well, which he fails to do on Cheyenne Anthem, which we'll come to later. Um, but Cheyenne Anthem, yeah, we've got a fucking full-on carousel ride to come with that. But... <laughs> I still quite like it though Me too (laughs) (laughs) Track three is a little thing called What's On My Mind And this is a bit more rocky It's got a nice little uh, hooky kind of um, chorus to it This is AOR This is progressive AOR um, Because I could hear Foreigner doing this hear Journey doing this Um, so the, you know they've they've shifted again, and they're they're into another gear as well. They've gone up a gear. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting massive, massive foreigner. Yeah, both in the the guitar riffs, uh, in the vocal delivery. Foreigner's debut was a year after this. Yeah, no, nothing to. Well, I'm listening to. It, I enjoy it. I've got nothing to add. It's just a top piece of driving rock, really. And just going back to what you were saying earlier about the concept notion, I think pretty much every song on here, and you you've touched on it, is about Livgren's faith conversion, isn't it? And and you listen to the lyrics in this, and for the first time, there's no pain in my life. Been a long, hard road that I've gone. That's the concept, isn't it? It's as simple as that. It is. It's just. It's just. It's just spiritual observations. And then people have just joined it all together. But that's just what he's singing about, isn't it? There's yeah. no shagging on here. <laughs> no, we're not going to get any of that on this one. Not going to get any of that on this one. I just, I find it astonishing that, you know, Kerry Livgren's wandered in. Steve Walsh, who, by the way, I think is a fantastic singer. Mm. Um, but Steve Walsh, who would normally be sort of part of that creative process, has kind of gone, I've got nothing. And Livgren has stepped up and come mm. up with kind of this, just on his own almost amazing it's grabbing victory from the jaws of defeat isn't it because this could have been a whole different story were it not for the kind of a, a circumstances well anyway um that aside miracles out of nowhere is not steve walsh singing uh singing jesus hand over to robert robbie steinhardt and both of the songs that he sings on i think are not quite as good as the ones that steve walsh <laughs> sings on um, this one's better than Che and Anthem, I would suggest. And this closes out side one. And it's absolutely solid. There's nothing wrong with it. I just prefer Steve Walsh's um, vocal, <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's interesting. I love Walsh, I must admit. And um, But I, I, I love Steinhardt to the extent that I'm asking the question, why didn't he sing more? Because I really enjoy his voice. I'm, I think this song suits him, personally, because it is quite folky. This track, by the way, is just great. It's straight onto a hammock playlist because it is just pure indulgent dreaminess. I, I, I just, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just one of those yeah, songs. Yeah. It's how you just get those songs that just cools you, just calms you down, just makes you feel. You know what? Life's great. It's really. very uplifting, isn't it? Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Song of the album. You've got this beautiful folk song interspersed with some unbelievable. I still haven't worked out the time signature. The phrasing. The the yeah. The, just the interplay between the instruments in these proggy bits in, bet- in between this lovely folk song. The middle section is completely bonkers. And then it's got this uh, big ed- energetic end. I think it's superb. Well, 
What do I know? <laughs> the thing about this album, though, is that any one of these, you you know, somebody could come and go, well, that's the song of the album, because it is so consistent, isn't it? And yeah. for me, the song of the album is is the next one, side, side two, track one, Opus Insert, which is, I mean, anybody getting massive doses of yes, so it's a bit odd that it's my, my favourite track of the album, but it is... Um, I think there's so much going on here. It's so interesting to listen to. So there's got loads of different time changes in it. And it's also, it's the kind of a prelude to the last track on the album as well. So, and I understand, I think I'm right in saying that this was a bit of left overture that they couldn't fit into Magnum Opus, which closes off the album. So I love this. I don't, it's, I don't know why I love it, but I do. It's just, I really look forward to hearing this every time it came up. I love the use of the instruments in this. This has been a real grower. The more I've listened to it, there's just so many bits and pieces going on in it. Very clever. Quite a bit of ELO. I'm getting here as well. Yeah, and I'm into the bit where, you know, where I'm almost thinking Tony Banks and Phil Collins when they were doing those conversations, nursery crime era, you know, and that sort of the, the middle bit, um, mm. drums and keyboards, take you on a kind of adventure. Um, and I love that slightly spacey outro as well into the big finish. It's just a great number. It, I just think it's it's an amazingly varied piece of work, isn't it? Mm. Um, and that carries on with track six as well. Questions of my childhood. Th- this also gives me massive a massive kind of injection of Genesis. But again, as you've already said, Steve, it's not. It doesn't sound derivative, but it's just you could hear Genesis doing it. I'm less bothered about this particular track. It's fine. It's fine. There's loads going on in it, and it's interesting. Would I pr- play it on a desert island? Uh, probably not. Oh, are you joking? Of course you would. If you um, look up Americana in the dictionary, and it's, it'll say questions of my childhood, this is proper gold. Again, what's not? I've just got a massive smile on my face just listening to it. Great harmonies, that great driving piano line. Love the violin moment. So catchy. You get a stadium rocking. Yeah, I, I think it's a very, very uplifting song. It's got a lovely bounce to it, a lo- lovely lightness of being. And my questions of my childhood, I mean, it's inquisitive and, and, and the music really supports the subject and mood. I think it's, it's really, really well written. Okay, good. Um, well, talking of childlike, we should uh, give a big shout out to Toy Rocker and Cheryl Norman, who provide the children's voices on Cheyenne Anthem, <laughs> which is the other track uh, on the album that isn't sung by Steve Walsh. Steve, I'm going to let you talk about the carousel moment. Uh, but bef- before I do, this does, again, this suits Steinhardt's voice a little bit because it is kind of slower and, and um, more gentle. It just seems to work with him at the mic, I think, personally, during that acoustic intro, and then it sort of builds with the piano at the floor. And then you get the fairground. We go to the fairground. I don't know what it's about, but um, I love the addition of the children's voice. Um, I love it at the end when there's a real entangled moment. Remember entangled off Trick of the Tail, um, which came out in the year. But fuck me, they, he, he, he's near the knuckle. With um, with that, with that carousel bit, that whirl. It's uh, as I say, it's a fine line between hard rock and camp fairgroundness. And, <laughs> um, it, I think he just misses the boat on this one. But it, it, and does it detract from the track? Barely. Uh, I have to say, I'm getting a whiff of rock for. Uh, I'm getting a whiff of the Simpsons theme. I, I think they should <laughs> sue Matt Groening because he's ripped this off. <laughs> the, the, the middle of this is the Simpsons theme tune. I'm convinced. <laughs> okay. Well, the, look, the album closes out. Um, track eight is a suite of a number of shorter pieces of music. Uh, it's five, uh, six in total. The, the first one is Father Padilla Meets the Perfect Nat. 
And if that isn't a Genesis title, then I don't know what it is. Exactly. Um, uh, Howling at the Moon, Man Overboard, Industry on Parade, which is not the grand parade of lifeless packaging, Nat Attack. They've got they've got a thing about gnats. <laughs> and and the fifth one is Release the Beavers. And bizarrely, remarkably, <laughs> this is not the last time we're going to talk about beavers on this show. <laughs> <laughs> this is all oh, over the shop, but I yeah. absolutely love it. Oh, absolutely me too. Love it. It's just brilliant. It's like a, it is like an abbreviated supper's ready, isn't it? Six yeah. tracks in eight minutes. Um, uh, yeah, Genesis illusions left, right, and centre. In fairness, I'm I'm not entirely sure I can figure out where one movement starts and other ends during the middle bit, but I, I couldn't no. get the toss. <laughs> I mean, this this whole piece of work has everything in spades. And when they run out of inspiration, they just thrash around and find <laughs> something else that works, layer it on, rack it up, keep on going. I'm in heaven. It's just a brilliant, brilliant. It's my track of the album. You said, Mark, earlier about uh, you know Williams and Hope and Ehart just being these standard musicians. I think the bass work on this track is unbelievable. It's absolutely mad. I can only presume these were the leftovers that they actually crammed together into <laughs> yeah. uh, into one. On track if you're cooking and you just think well i'm just gonna lob any old thing together and yeah. you, you put it all in the pan and then at the end you think a bit of chicken well actually yeah actually that tastes quite nice it's um, true that's, that's, that's actually a really interesting thought process isn't it if we think that most of this album is kind of based on songs that you know that come off the sort of cutting room floor this is the effectively six songs that they would never actually started or finished and still mm. just lobbed them all together i mean it's i can't believe that's the case but it just almost feels like it doesn't it I, somehow I, yeah. it works yeah. I, I, I hope a, it's true. <laughs> yeah, such a good me- such a good metaphor. It is the musical equivalent of going fuck. There's nothing in the fridge. What have we got in the <laughs> <Yeah>. cupboard? <laughs> Brilliant. So, Steve, we're going to give you the, the tough job of, of finding where in that one point your yes. high is and where are your low is. Cheyenne Anthem's probably the low point, perhaps. Still love it. And I've got three on the same score at the top as well. And I'll go Magnum Opus. As soon as I heard it, I just thought, this is just nuts. Brilliant. <laughs> Richard? Nothing scores low. Uh, and there's a big consistency. Cheyenne Anthem, what's on my mind? Get my lowest score. But one that does stand above are the, the others, as I said, earlier it's miracles out of nowhere i think it's genius okay well i think that's probably shane anthem is a uh, a clean sweep or a cleanish sweep with um what's on my mind but my high of the album which wasn't anywhere near the best for me or when i first listened to it was opus insert mm-hmm. uh, the opening track of side two so um there you go that's kansas left overture 1976 ladies and gentlemen um and we're going to nudge towards the uh 1980s now with a last gasp chronologically at least effort from one i gillen esquire formerly of the deep purple estate and parish steve opening album sleeve notes yes so mr universe by gillen just an old favorite really it honestly is um and not, and not simply because of the the magnificence of the mighty mr gillen himself but yeah colin towns my ivory tinkler of choice um for this episode without whom of course there might not have been a gillen as we came to know them more of that later so mr universe first album second album whatever um it is what it is and what it is 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 just rock joy i've always i've always thought it um is it my favorite gillen album probably completely out of time really for when it was and what it was about and all part of this whole story of kind of you know how luckless Gillen were one of the most underrated undervalued bands of all time I think I mean again given the the magnitude of of, of the man at the mic opening album sleeve notes <laughs> 
released in October 79, um, recorded April to June 79 on the Acrobat label, um, which went bust right after. 44 minutes long. Producers were Gillen Towns and bass player John McCoy plus Paul Watkins at the Kingsway Recording Studio in London. As I say, yeah, there was a previous album, Gillen, the year before, but it was only released in the Far East. Then... Latterly, I think, in Australia, New Zealand, never in this country. Um, it was quite a big import hit, I do believe. Um, but the next album was Glory Road, when they were back on Virgin. Personnel, that, so this is the big five, the, the, the best lineup, really, although I love Yannick Gers. Um, this is with Bernie Torme on guitar, alongside Gillen and McCoy and Towns and Underwood on drums. Um, so, yeah, Colin Towns, he was a sort of, he was a big jazz fan um, and a session musician who just teamed up with Gillen. We replaced a guy called Mickey Lee Soul in the Ian Gillen band in 76, played with Gillen in effect for six years. And that was kind of it for his his um, his rock CV. Um, he went on to do also any number of different things. He was just composing, arranging, playing in a big band called the Mask Orchestra. I've never heard or never, never heard anything of. But he's perhaps best known for the number of um, TV shows that he, he writes um, theme tunes for along the lines of, and I've got them all here, there's sort of Dalziel and Pasco, Bodyguards, Our Friends in the North, Foils War, Doc Martin, a whole load of, of massive shows. And you think, oh, that's a nice theme tune. Mr. Colin Towns, ladies and gentlemen. And my favourite, Angelina Ballerina. Just brilliant. I mean, what a CV. That's fantastic. So, yeah, so that's Colin Towns. And this is Mr. Universe. Um, reached number 11 in the charts sold over 2 million apparently worldwide I think it sold more than that but that's Wikipedia for you 10 tracks 5 on each side Second Sight Secret of the Dawn She Tears Me Down Roller and Mr. Universe um, Vengeance Puget Sound Dead of Night Message in the Bottom and Fighting Man Towns, they were they were the dream team. They did most of the songwriting. Towns wrote three on his own, um, and only one track on this album that was written by the whole band. But yes, um, it was basically a, a Gillen and Towns production. And uh, as I say, without Towns, Gillen probably wouldn't have existed in the form they were. You know what? I know these tracks so well. I still love them. I've always loved them. Um, although, funnily enough, I was just thinking as I was playing it last week, I've not probably played it end to end for an awful long time. And doing so again just just whisked me back, gave me great so much pleasure. It's just the uh, 
just a really good album. I presume you to have enjoyed it as much as I have over the last seven days or so. Absolutely. Uh, again, we've we've got more prog, haven't we? You know more about the band than, than I do. Again, was this something that Towns brought in? There's some very proggy bits uh, to this, as well as obviously some some straight ahead rock and some clearly uh, deep purple esque stuff. This week's been so enjoyable these three albums really really enjoyed it i think this is an album oddly enough that gets better as it goes on the stuff that i'm less bothered about is at the beginning of the album and the stuff i love is towards the end so that's interesting because normally it's the other way around normally they open up don't they with band opens up the best that it's got i think i'm right i haven't heard any of the ian gillen band but it was all a bit sort of experimental (laughs) jazz fusion stuff wasn't it and is that great british public that went yeah that's not what we really want Ian. we just want deep purple but yeah just you and i think is that what you're referring to when when that all came crashing to an end towns went to him and said listen ian this is what you need to be doing and gillen who was all for i think at that point had gone right i'm just going to divest myself of all of these people and i'm going to do something completely different kind of went okay would you want to come with me what i loved about i've watched a couple of interviews um with all of the band with the exception of ian gillen who clearly didn't want to take part but the 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 rest of the band mccoy underwood tormey and towns are all interviewed and it's very clear that colin towns right from the start sees himself as a musician and a and a composer not as a rock star and i think that's really really interesting because i think that informs the whole of this album yeah it's an interesting relationship isn't it i think gillen knew that he didn't really want to be doing the ian gillen band and was just looking for an excuse to fold it and colin towns said to him well here's the excuse you need to be doing some rock again and towns despite his background and it is in jazz and and more thoughtful composition he saw the future and and yeah he'd been he'd he'd played in those concerts where fans were saying well for fuck's sake don't just come on stage here Ian and start doing jazz we know you from from smoke on the water and things like that you know that's what we expect and so Towns is very astute and said no no no, we need to go and reform a rock band Um, and and that's how it came about Um, and that's how you got this second incarnation but I think the Ian Gillen band effectively held him, held Gillen the project back as well because of the connotations of what went before. It, it, it was it was a, it was an interregnum that didn't work between Purple and Gillen. It, it was a real setback, and then throwing the fact that you know seventy nine, you know you got snotty punks, you know gobbing all over the place, and they're not that. Gillen's not new wave of British heavy metal by any stretch because he's in his mid thirties and associated with Purple. So there's an awful lot against them. And never mind the fact Acrobat went bust, so they have to go and find another record label. And then, of course, he fell out with this band as well as he fell out with the last one as well. Great. It's a great story. I love the story. But I did, the, the upshot is that they just was never as successful as I think they should have been, despite having had a few, you know, top 20 hits. But there you go. So, as I say, five tracks on each side with Mr. Universe. And we kick off with Second Sight. But one of the three tracks on here that's penned by Towns Alone, and that's kind of fairly obvious because it's a keyboard piece. In a perfect world, I probably wouldn't mark it because it's little more than a prelude really uh, it takes a while to get going it starts with a sort of bit of mournful towns piano then we've got the bigger organ sound i'm guessing it's an organ more towns piano more atmosphere it's very atmospheric but it's only short and as i say it's an instrumental picks up and and just kind of melodically drifts its way into secret of the dance which is um which is track two um and secret of the dance is it's so deep purple you you, you just you know exactly where it's come from um but it's under three minutes long there's keyboards mick underwood's crashing drums big beefy bass lines from big beefy john wonderful torme solo followed by a wonderful town solo um and all held together with gillen singing as majestically and 
wonderful and monumentally as he does. It's a great track. Mm. What do you guys make of it as an, as an opening to the album? It's, it's Deep Purple on speed, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's a brilliant, yeah, proper start to the album. It really does sound like McCoy is only just keeping up, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love it. I don't know if you've tried to do anything whilst listening to this song, but it's one of those songs you suddenly realise, oh, I, I appear to be washing up very quickly. <laughs> I'm not sure you can just gloss over the fact that Second Sight is just a monumental piece of nonsense at the beginning <laughs> of the album. Um, what the hell is that all about? Why is this it open the album? If it's a, a prelude, then it's 40 Shorten seconds. It. Shorten it, not, yeah. Not two yeah. and a half fucking minutes. Yeah. Just absolute bollocks. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we want to be kind to the man, but but equally, you know, <laughs> he has to pay for his mistakes. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll move on from second sight. I'm assuming that we are marking it. Well, but yeah. you know, yeah, um, fair enough. I'm not bothered about track two. To be perfectly honest, it's it's my Lusitania Express moments. Too fast, mm. too breathless. Um, it makes me tired just listening to it. And mm-hmm. It's the late 70s, Mark. It's of its time. Yeah, yeah that, but that's precisely it. It's of its time, but there's so much better stuff on this album than the, yeah. those two tracks. Anyway, what it does go into is uh, see, She Tears Me Down. Track of side one for me, you know, it was just a magnificent piece. Big intro, and then that sort of wonderfully, and they do this a lot. These sort of tone changes and tempo changes and light and shade, classic Gillen trick. So you get this wonderfully quiet play between Towns and Gillen, both on point. Underwood joins in, and then you get this real sort of jazz club feel to it. It's so laid back, and they and they labour that unashamedly and properly, and then it picks up again into a proper rock chorus with Gillen straining as only he can. Drops back again into that lovely sort of first sequence picks up again Towns takes over with a moment of piano I love it all I love the keyboards the organs the synths all of them but a piano played well I still think it's an essential part of your of your metal genre I, I think it's every you know when it's played well it's brilliant and man he can play it now we're talking this is Gillen I love the piano in this I love the the chorus I think this is where Gillen is just in a class of his own and Underwood's contribution to this to this track particularly should not be underestimated in one of the interviews that I saw he said what the band really needed was a drummer with a baseball bat and a diver's boot and (laughs) that is kind of what he does here he just kind of smacks seven shades of shit out of the drums and really just adds this sort of cacophony this big sound (laughs) um, to to the whole album He, he, he contributes so much love this track Absolutely love it. And he's very deprecating about his own drum playing, isn't he? Yes, he's, he is. he's forever complimenting other people ahead of himself. Um, yeah. But, but you're That's right. What I say. He said, I had a baseball bat and a diver's boot. Yeah. And it's so much more than yeah. that. <laughs> it, it's a wonderful song. So well sung, brilliantly arranged, brilliantly balanced. Yeah, they don't need to be fast and heavy. And his uh, piano playing is out of this world. So a good final celebration of keyboardists, definitely. Not just the track of the side for me. This is the track of the album. Okay. Interesting. Well, I remember, Steve, that when we did Future Shock, you in your in the way you summed it up, you said we didn't like it when they went too fast, but when they slowed it down, we really yeah. loved it, and that's yeah, true yeah. of this album as well for me. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a Gillen template. I mean, that yeah. you use throughout the four albums, really, five albums, including Magic. Because next up is Roller, um, and as is the Gillen Way, Fast, Slow, Fast, Slow, you, you know what you're getting, having listened to the previous track, and, and, and we're there again. Real quickie. Speed King, anyone? Some great musicianship within the... This is more 
out of control, I think. That's really weird. I think this is much more controlled than... Um, Secret of the Dance. Secret of the Dance, yeah, I really okay. do. Yeah. I, don't, I like it. I don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong, I like it. John McCoy on the bass, leading from the front, but hey, it's one of, the, one of the lesser songs on here, I suggest. No, it's not. And can I tell you why it's not? Please. It's this lyric. Keep your hands on my lever... Watch it while I stab your beaver. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Which just made me literally coke the fizzy kind came out of my nose when I heard that. (laughs) They were always saying he was trying to out Coverdale, Coverdale, wasn't he? Because they're just, uh, Adam White's not just done Love Hunter or something. Super smutty. Lever, watch it while I stab your beaver. Fucking hell, that's just genius. I was putting in a similar bucket to Sacre Bleu. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah this fast slow fast slow bit I, I i think i'd prefer if he kept them in pairs because for me it's sandwiched mm, you know yeah. in between mr universe and she tears me down i'm thinking oh really <laughs> this yeah one? yeah no i get that absolutely get that and yeah and mr universe is, is a you know stunning finish of the science as far as i'm concerned you know and and proof that the keyboard can provide the riff as well because it because on this track it does, you know, Tans' contribution on this. I still think he gets dwarfed by Gillen, especially at the end, um, where where one of the greatest voices in rock demonstrates why it is so amazing. Um, it's just such a rock god. But anyway, all points of Mr. Universe are brilliant. I love the lyrics, love Gillen's delivery as a say. Um, there's a middle bit where Torme shows off that I don't quite get, but it doesn't actually detract massively from, from the song as a whole, uh, which is a giant. Yeah, it's very proggy, isn't it? Mm. complex I like the different parts and the moods to it I find the guitar bit in the middle a mess yeah uh, for me, and for me it does detract from it okay um, because you the chalk and cheese with the stuff either side of it which is just fantastic I find yeah. so it's uh, it's lost a mark for yeah the mess of a guitar bit. I, I think this is a, a bit of a precursor to the new wave of British heavy metal, actually. I, I really like this. I think this is properly heavy. It is Gillen doing heavy metal, isn't it, rather than hard rock? And, and I, I like it. I like it because he can pull it off, I think, in the hands of another vocalist. I think it'd be potentially truly awful. But I think this is just a brilliant way to finish the side. I love this. I think this is a great great song. It is. And at 6 minutes 14 seconds long, it's it's almost an epic, but of course that's yet to come. Side 2 kicks off with Vengeance. And if, and if that's a, a doffing your hat to Nawabum, then surely this is this is the age of punk, because Vengeance is, a, is, a, is a, just a proper punk rocker. All nice, clean lines, decent riffs, straight ahead. You know, you can hear the skids doing this. I like it. I'm not massively enamoured with it, but I, I think really? it's, it's... No. It's kind of I think it's fine. Groove. I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all right. I find it a bit ploddy. For, for me, it's not punk. It's, uh, I, I, this has got echoes of, uh, of sort of earlier 70s glam, uh, sort uh, of the sweet yeah. and things like that to it. T-Rex. Um, yeah, t yeah. But no, one of the weaker ones on the album for me. I, I'm hearing a completely different album to you two, I think. <laughs> I really do. Because uh, the, the, the stuff that you're less enamoured with, I really like, and vice versa. I love this track. I think it's great. Um, but of course, having having been fairly straight up, fast, you know what's coming next, which isn't the same. And that, in this case, is Puget Sound, with the, which is the one song on the album written by a whole lot of them. Um, you want lyrics. Moving <laughs> yeah. over your knee was new territory. We were passing through Billings, Montana. As we slipped through Spokane, you said something profane, and I shifted up into Nirvana. 
I mean, come on. I <laughs> yeah, know, oh, it's brilliant. Genius, genius, <laughs> and it runs through. Another one of those hybrid songs that, that Gillen did so well. So that's a nice lead guitar work, occasional power, bags of jazz and blues as well. You see Town's influence all over it. It's, it's a good song. I, I, it is a good song. Um, I like it more than Vengeance. There's better to come. Yeah, big step up. I uh, love the honky-tonk piano solo in it. Lovely groove to it. Good fun. Really good fun song. So uh, I'll, I'll take your um, I'll take your Billings Montana lyric and raise you with lying there like a pearl. Oh my Ithaca girl, we got forty four days in Tacoma. <laughs> we lay in the sand with my life in your hand. I just drifted in Pacificoma. <laughs> brilliant, just brilliant. Apparently based on a true story about a girl he met on a family trip to America, taking a Greyhound bus to Spokane, where he okay. went to the back of the bus which was relatively empty with this girl. And I imagine had quite a good time. (laughs) Very good. Right, we're doing lyrics. In the Birmingham Mail, they reported a whale they discovered in the dead of night. In the local canal, it was found by a pal that the bloke had lost it from his bike. (laughs) And it's that pause before he says bike. I'm talking about dead of night. It's that pause before he says bike. You're thinking, where's he going with this? Where the fuck is he going with? He's fantastic. It's so clever. <laughs> I love it. Proper sleazy little gem. Um, dead of night. Um, yeah, as I say, unforgettable lyrics. A couple of town solos. Yeah, the tempo throughout just sizzles and grooves. Really good song. Really good song. Brilliant bassline. Re- really low and dirty, and then and then it dances around a bit. It slips back down. And again, with Towns brings real personality to this song again, doesn't he? Uh, with this keyboard playing very very good I absolutely agree with you both I uh, just love this track it's a, on any given day it could be my top track of the album I'm not sure I'll, I'll make a decision at the end of this conversation about which one it is tonight mm. but it would be a different one tomorrow probably but this one is definitely up there I just think it's just got a fabulous backbeat to it and um, and Gillen has just oh, he's just got such such humour in his lyrics isn't he mm. it just and you end up sitting listening for the for the lyric and yeah some great stuff on this um and then i called her at dawn and we made love on the lawn because her daddy thought it was all right like every good father does <laughs> yeah. it is good it is good track nine one uh, two to go message in a bottle and um it's kind of a bit, a bit of a new orleans feel to this or uh, well, i thought sacred blur because it even contains the same sort of malevolent laugh at some point that you get in sacred blur proper rocker um which you kind of knew was coming um, and therefore you can pretty much guess what track 10 is going to sound like because that's Gillen for you. Yeah, I, uh, not, not much to say. Short, sweet, great outro led by, you know, McCoy's bass, Towns on Keys. That's another good song. Yeah, when he charges along, doesn't it? He's at his mischievous best again in this, isn't he? Uh, there's a real twinkle in his eye you can sense as he's, as he's singing. I, I love his singing on this. Yeah, good interplay. Again, great bass. Not bothered about this track at all. It's my, my low point of the album, I'm afraid. Don't find anything remotely interesting in here. So no, move on. Well, I'm happy to do so, much as I like Message in a Bottle. I'm happy to do so because it means we're going to listen to Fighting Man. Um, just, you know, G- Gillen did epics. I love Born to Kill um, and I love Fighting Man. I mean, you know, this Towns wrote this and written a few years before because it was the song which led to the dismantling of the Ian Gillen band because none of that band, when he introduced it to them, none of that band thought this was any good. Gillen figured... Um, this is the direction I want to go, lads, actually. So 
we'll just end this band now, shall we? Um, so to that end, we need to be enormously grateful to Mr. Colin Sounds um, for effectively bringing a curtain down on, on the Ian Gillen band. This is just genius. It's a wonderful, brooding, breathing, building, seven-minute work of art, as far as I'm concerned, on which Towns can paint any number of pictures with his with his keyboards, be they organ or piano. Gillen, and when Gillen emotes on a track, which he does on tracks like this, there's very few others have that sort of capacity or capability or, you know, skill to do it. There's some jamming. There's loads going on anyway. And the last minute and a half are just simply a masterclass in Gillen's vocal range and an illustration of why I love the bloke, why I absolutely Mm -hmm. love the bloke. You know, big high screams into the most tender of finishes. Always been a favourite track of mine, and uh, I'll never, ever tire of it. Mm-hmm. It would go on a desert island, be on a hammock playlist, the works. Brilliant it's song. A, it's weird, because I could have sworn you said it was written by Colin Towns, and I thought it was written by Paul Rogers and Simon Kirk. Because <laughs> is anybody else getting bad company by bad company? Because I certainly am. Um, no, which doesn't, which is not to say I don't absolutely love it. Because this is my high point of the album. Absolutely adore this song. I think it's fantastic. And you're absolutely right, Steve. We heard it. Um, if I sing softly and for your dreams on Future Shock, when he does this kind of track, I don't think there's anybody better. It's just hugely powerful, even when it's gentle. I just love it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Track of the side for me, brilliant finish. It, it's again, it's the understated start, it's the build, and then the the, the the second half has got such power and precision. And I think it's a lovely track to to sign off with for this episode, uh, in terms of celebrating these three amazing keyboard players. Because Town's piano is the glue as well. It it, 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 it sticks everything together and make, makes eight minutes not sound like eight minutes yeah. at all really clever yeah and he's and it's, it's that lack of fear about using the piano as well when all these all these keyboards and synths and organs are available to you but they, he is the piano so well and this band uses the piano so well it's a beautiful instrument isn't it let's face it um, and it can as i say it can work in the in the rock metal genre and he makes it sing you know simple as that yeah really good album really good album anyway highs and lows well, shall I go first? Um, Fighting Man is my high. Message in a bottle um, didn't really communicate to me at all. Okay, Richard? Yeah, for me, well, I'd, I'd, if we're marking second sight, that would be my low, because it's not much of a track, really. In terms of the proper tracks, um, take your pick between Roller and Vengeance. And, yeah, as I said earlier, uh, She Tears Me Down just beats Fighting Man for the top place. Okay, yeah, I'll just reverse that because I love them both. Um, Fighting Man for me, yes, Second Sight, if we're marking it, and I think we are, but of the real tracks, I'll probably make uh, Vengeance my lowest. But let me assure you, it's not a low score. It really isn't. Because Mr. Universe is worthy of high scores. That's the kind of album it is. The third of our albums tonight on this keyboard special. So we're going to bugger off and mark these track by track, and then we'll see where they're going to fall in the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, yes, so the scores are in. So how did our three albums celebrating keyboardists do overall? Well, Uriah Heap was first, Demons and Wizards from 1972, my choice. And the scores are as follows. Steve gave it a 6.83, Mark an 8.14, and me an 8.11. And that gave Demons and Wizards an overall of... Just a shade under 7.7. Mark, how did Kansas do? 
very well, actually, uh, for an album that none of us were particularly familiar with to begin with. Um, Steve gave it an bang on eight. Uh, I liked it slightly better with an 8.03. Um, you weren't quite so keen, Richard. Uh, you brought it in at 7.8 to give it an overall album score of 7.94583. Steve, Mr. Universe. Yeah, strong sevens, strong sevens all round for uh, for Gillen's Mr. Universe. Uh, Richard, you gave it seven point four five. Mark seven point five eight. Me seven point seven for an overall album score of seven point five seven six six seven. So I reckon we should go to the Hall of Fame and see where these scores have left these three albums. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so three more albums inserted into the Hall of Fame, which is now 207 strong. We've been doing this for over a year now. 207 albums. And yeah, three keyboard-driven albums gone into it tonight. Gillen's Mr. Universe is the lowest of the three. I want to say lower. They're all in the top 100, these three albums. We've enjoyed them that much. Mr. Universe is in at 86. <laughs> I, just, I just love the juxtapositions. Behind Crocus's Heart Attack and ahead of Flotsam and Jetsam's No Place for Disgrace. <laughs> Demons and Wizards is at 66, um, Uriah Heap's album, um, underneath Fate's Warning, Parallels, and Kiss's debut album. And the pick of the three, as you've heard from the scores we gave a few minutes ago, Kansas's Left Overture, which is at 42, behind Too Fast for Love by Motley Crue and Above Veins, No Respect, um, with its score of 7.945 and a bit. So, yeah, I mean, proving once again how much we love the 70s. And, and I just thought that we'd like to give you a sort of recap of how our Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame is looking. You can always check it out online. Um, and you know what's top, Back in Black and Ride the Lightning, not the... But because we've celebrated three 70s albums on this episode, the keyboard special just so happened to be um, three 70s albums that we thought we'd just run through our top 10 70s albums that we've been doing over the past year or so. We've got there's 60-odd albums, I think, we've done from that decade. And we've done, you know, all the big bands, Thin Lizzy and Rainbow and Heart and Rush and ACDC, Zeppelin, Purple, the whole work. So we, a, a really good sort of cross-section of the decade. Um, and I thought we'd run through our top 10. So from the 70s that we've done, us three on the Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame in the 70s. And Kansas's Left Overture gets in at number 10 um, with its score of whatever it was, 7.94. And then the rest are all eight and above. So at nine, Boston's Boston. Going for the one by Yes is at eight. ACDC's If You Want Blood at seven. Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin three at six. Um, and then into the top five with Blue Oyster Cult's Secret Treaties, ACDC's Let Debbie Rock. And then the top three, Lucifer's Friend. Where did that come from? That's from Left Field. Um, with Lucifer's Friend, 1970, score of 8.35. Number two, we're coming to the big two. Number two, Deep Purple, Machine Head, and top of the shop, as you know, because it's number three in our overall Hall of Fame, is Led Zeppelin IV. So there you go, a little flavour of um, what we're viewing, what we're liking from the decade of, what are they, what are they used to call it? I don't know what the fuck they called it. Anyway, the decade of something or other. <laughs> the, <laughs> the decade, apparently the decade that music forgot. I would beg yes. to differ. That's right. That's what they called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, one or two of us had, well, me certainly had reservations about having to travel back there too much um, when we started this project. But well, I think this is proof it's been thoroughly enjoyable, given the number of high scores we got in there. All very, very interesting. And also quite interesting that um, Uriah Heap, who come in at number 20 with uh, Demons and Wizards in that 70s list, are also 
in the bottom five yes. with uh, look at yourself just a year beforehand. So, I mean, admittedly, the gap is not hugely great between the two of them, but uh, that just shows that a lot can happen in 12 months, can't it? What's in the, what's in the bottom three then, Mark? Let us know. What, so, what, what were the, what so, the bottom threes? So propping up everybody is, uh, yes, is fragile, and you can thank me for that. Um, it's uh, it, I, I gave it a sub five. I, I can't tell you how much I loathe that album. <laughs> um, and then, uh, then slightly just one above that um, uh, uh, is a an album that actually we all sort of quite liked, but it's mm. Sweet Desolation Boulevard, and then the Alice Cooper Band with Billion Dollar Babies, followed by Your Eye Heat, Look at Yourself, and then Fifth from Bottom, The Runaways, Waiting for the Night. But anyway, enough of the 1970s. <laughs> well, we might still be in the 1970s next week. We, we pulled out last week, if you were listening to the last episode, we pulled out, or Tico Torres spat out, the theme of energy for um, next for our next episode's theme. So we had to go away and find an album each that kind of met tenuously or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect they're going to be tenuous. You'd think that would be easy, wouldn't you? I mean, Richard, being the engineer and science, science boffin uh, among three us, went through about 800 different types of energy that we could have picked from. <laughs> I'm not sure that I've even hit the brief. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's... Let's see. Steve, what have you chosen? Well, I've, tr- I've tried to hit the brief twice over, so I've, I'm hopefully you'll agree with at least if it's not the album, then it's the band. And I've gone for ACDC's Flick of the Switch. Excellent choice. <laughs> Power on. <laughs> <laughs> Richard. So I've gone for a form of stored energy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Jesus. That of a trapped gas. <laughs> <laughs> Where could this be going? Where could this be going? It's been at least 20 episodes before I've bored, since I've bored you with some rush, I think, isn't it? So um, I've gone for uh, their, uh, oh, crumbs, what is, it, what is it, 1984 release, I think. Jesus, I should even, I should know what blooming uh, year this album is. Grace Under Pressure. Well, there were three that three Rush albums. I thought you might you might have gone for. I didn't even know pressure was an energy. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, not there really. Two, it's a bit. Hmm. <laughs> well, there were two that I thought you might go for. I thought you might go for Power Windows, and then I thought I thought, oh uh, no, actually, he might well go for Permanent Waves. Now, Permanent Waves was my second choice. Um, my first choice was Flick of the Switch. Ooh. So. Luckily, I did have a third choice. So we're also going to be listening to The Great Radio Controversy by Tesla. There you go. That's for the next episode of the Enter Sadmen podcast. Uh, That's going to be a good week, by the way, because um, I kind of think that Flick of the Switch is my favourite or second favourite ACDC album. I think it's hugely underrated. Will I still think that at the end of the next episode? We'll find out. Thank you very much for your company. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.